Our New Testament reading this morning comes from James chapter 1. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good, perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. If you're new here, we've been going through a rather lengthy series on spiritual formations, looking at rhythms, habits, patterns of life that are conducive to growing to more fully connect with Jesus and what He is doing in our lives and in the world. And this morning, we're looking at one of the primary things that we have to deal with, and that is temptation. And I can think of no better place to start with temptation than with a Coen Brothers film, O Brother, Where Art Thou? Any fans in here? One of my favorite Coen Brother movies. Um, and I laugh at new things every time I watch it. And the first time I watched it, it wasn't quite as funny because I didn't know that it was adapted from Homer's Odyssey. But it's a, a loose, a very loose adaptation of the book that we all had to read in elementary school or, or middle school. And they fit in 20 or more connections. So there's a, a one-eyed John Goodman who is, of course, the Cyclops There's a a blind engineer who prophesies about their journey, just like Tiresias does in the the Odyssey. And then there's the sirens, or as they call it in O Brother, Where Art Thou? Where Art Thou? The sirens, because it's Great Depression-era Mississippi. In the Odyssey, the sirens lure sailors to death by beautiful singing. In O Brother, Where Art Thou? They lure them to turn them into a horny toad. This beautiful sound, beautiful women entice, seduce, lure these men into believing that their music leads to pleasure and to fulfillment and to life, but ultimately it leads to rocks and shipwreck. The focus of this passage is temptation, the idea that we are drawn oftentimes to things that ultimately are destructive, things that destroy us. And we all understand temptation, whether we're Christians or not. We all have this temptation to, at times, overeat, overdrink, overwork. We understand temptation. We understand that our desires are often cross-purposes with what is actually good for us. But maybe you're not so familiar or don't necessarily understand this concept of temptation to sin. And that's what James is getting to. And sin is a loaded term. It's an old-fashioned term. It's a term that Christians normally use to point outside of the church, to refer to those outside as sinners. But maybe you change the terminology of what we're tempted to, but you you still believe, I believe, in what it designates and what sin points to. If you push hard enough against anyone in this room, you'll get to the point to where that person will say, this is good and should be approved and should be supported, and this is wrong and should be opposed. Kathleen Norris, who is a poet and observer of spirituality in America, says, Comprehensible, sensible sin is one of the unexpected gifts that I've found in the monastic tradition. 
the fourth century monks began to answer a question for me that the human potential movement of the late 20th century never seemed to address. If I'm okay and you're okay, and our friends, nice people, and like us, markedly middle class, if a bit bohemian, if we're all okay, why is the world definitely not okay? Blaming others won't do. Only when I began to see the world's ills mirrored in myself did I begin to find an answer. Only as I began to address that uncomfortable word, sin, did I see that I was not being handed a load of needless guilt so much as a useful tool for confronting the negative side of human behavior. What is wrong with the world, what is wrong with humanity, she says, is not that we lack the right information, the right technology, not only that we inhabit defective social structures, although that may be true, it's not simply that we misunderstand one another. But the reason that she says not everything is okay in the world out there is that not everything is okay in the world inside, in our internal world. That there's something internal to each of us, a compass that often points away from what we know to be, in fact, good. And James here says that we're dragged away and enticed, not by something external to us, but by our own desires. Even if you're not, a, not yet a Christian, you've experienced this biblical anthropology. I don't want to live this way, and yet I keep doing so. I know I shouldn't yell at my kids, but they make me so angry. I know I should respect my parents, but it's hard when they're wrong all the time. Our head and our heart, or our desires, can often go in very opposite directions. Our hearts, our desires are aimed at something, and surely all of us could admit this, that our desires are after something, some good, and it's not always towards healthy, positive, life-giving things, not real, eternal goods. Blessed is the one who endures trials, James says in verse 12, trials. But then in the next verse, that word, periazzo, becomes temptation. Same word, two different ways of using it in this translation. And what the translators of, this, of the Bible are trying to get across is that this is a very nuanced, a very expansive term. On one hand, James is drawing the distinction between the external and the internal temptation, that trials are the occasion for sin but not the cause of sin that we all face difficulties, that we all have people that don't like us at work, that are hard to work with. We have people in our family that are hard to deal with, and we like to blame them as the reason and as the cause of our sin, but really they're not the cause, they're the occasion. They're the circumstances, the environment that gives rise to what's actually going on in our heart and gives it an opportunity to express itself. So on one hand, he's drawing this distinction Trials are the occasion, but not the cause. But also, what James is doing is he's connecting trials and temptations, that every trial is, in fact, a temptation, a temptation to give up hope, a temptation to walk away from the faith. Every change in circumstances, in other words, presents us with an opportunity and a danger. Life is not static, and we are all going somewhere as people. And if you reconnect with someone on Facebook after decades, you see that the person that you used to know is not that same person today. And oftentimes you see that they've grown, grown more cynical, more disillusioned, 
more bored with life, more jaded and fearful, or you find people that after 20 or 30 years, they seem softer than they once were. They seem more fulfilled. They seem wiser. They seem resilient. James says in verse 14, one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then, when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. You see, what James is giving us here is not simply the sequence of a single moral lapse. What James is talking about is that there's a whole way of life that looks appealing, that looks enticing, that seems to be the pathway to fulfillment and happiness, but leads to death. That sin is a a siren song, that it sounds so wonderful. This is what I want. This is where my desires will be finally fulfilled, and then we end up as horny toads. I'm the one, James says, who gives perfect gifts. You see, what God is doing is not trying to constrain your or my fun. He's trying to give us the pathway to real life, to true life. He says everything good is from him, that he gives us birth. He gives us the first fruits of a new creation. He gives us good gifts. And what he is telling us about sin and temptation is not stop having fun. It's let me point you to the way, the pathway of true life. He wants to entice you to a fulfilling, delightful relationship with Him. That's the nature of temptation. That's the nature of sin. It's not misbehavior, first of all, but misplaced trust, misplaced love, misplaced desire. Walking away from the goodness of God and placing our sinnermost desires on a substitute love. Do you remember our confession of sin? That they had begun to hoe out cisterns for themselves that didn't hold water. That these things looked useful and looked well, looked good, but they didn't work ultimately. They had put their loves on something else. And what God was doing is saying, please come back to me. He missed his relationship with his children. Now, how do we come back? How do we resist temptation? Well, Another quote, Eugene Peterson, who's a a former pastor, and you've heard me quote him numerous times, he says, all of us are sinners, and we're not going to cease being sinners by redoubling our efforts at being good. Living in the open means that we don't have to hide who we really are, whitewash our reputations, or disguise our hearts. We can be open about who we are, about what we have thought and felt and even done, We don't have to exhaust ourselves to project the blame for who we are on God or on our parents or on society. We don't have to make up fancy excuses. How refreshing that is, he says. It doesn't sound too refreshing at first, right? Is it refreshing to take all the blame upon ourselves? Is it refreshing to take responsibility for our own actions? Yes, because you don't have to hide and pretend anymore. You don't have to live double lives. You don't have to assign blame. You don't have to justify your behavior. You can own it. You can take responsibility for it. And in doing so, you can begin to deal with what's really important, not just a moral lapse, not just a sinful moment or choice or behavior or even habit, 
But what that choice, what that habit, what that moral lapse actually points to that deeply resides in your heart, what it tells you about your loves and your desires and who or what they're actually placed upon. Most of us talk about sin at just that first level, the behavioral, but what God wants to do is get to the bottom of the motivational. Why do we do the things that we do? What have we attached our hearts to other than Him that is showing up in our behavior? Let me tell you about something that happens all too frequently in our house. We have somewhere to go, let's say, uh, in a certain time, and let's say 2.30 on a Saturday. Now, I have four kids, so that's a pretty monumental task to get us out of the house on time and dressed in the appropriate clothes and everyone in a good mood. Well, what do I do on these days, particularly a Saturday? I know we've got somewhere to go, 2.30, it's going to be a rush, monumental task. What do I do? I get up and I have coffee. I have two cups of coffee. Then I read. Then I check the news. Then I check Facebook, all while sitting on the couch in my PJs. And then about 1.45, I think, oh, everyone get ready. And I bark out an order, and then I go upstairs and get myself ready. And so I come downstairs at 2.15, and guess what? I expect everyone to be ready and waiting at the door, and it doesn't happen. In fact, it's never happened like that. But I still predict that that's the right outcome, and that's what, every, what should happen, that I deserve everyone in my family to stop what they're doing and get on my wavelength and my timeline. And when it doesn't happen, I get frustrated and irritated. How dare they? <laughs> How dare they take up my time? You see what's going on there? Other people were put on the planet to cater to my needs and my plans, and they failed to recognize that. And so then they become people that need to be corrected. And I get to offload my possible embarrassment about being late to them. But guess what? Here's the thing. By shifting blame, by not taking responsibility, I was actually giving control, giving power to my environment. I had attached my heart to a certain set of circumstances, a certain outcome, and In so doing, it now controlled me. When you place the blame of something on something or someone else, you give it or them power. You grant it control over your life. But when you say, I'm responsible, you're stealing that power and that control from that behavior, from that person, from that scar or circumstances, and you're saying, I will not be controlled in that way. There's another word that we need to consider, and it's epithumia. It's the word that translators have a a great trouble with because, again, this is an expansive, complex word. And it can mean lust or desire towards bad things, towards evil. But also, and more typically, it can mean desiring good things in the wrong way. In other words, it's not that we want bad things, but that we want good things so bad badly. Do you see? It's not that we want bad things necessarily, but it's that we want good things so badly that we make them into non-negotiables. Temptation to sin, then, is not simply an impulse towards misbehavior or breaking the rules, but giving ultimate value to anything other than God. 
It's giving over loyalty, control to things, people, circumstances, and giving them rather than God the control and lordship over our happiness, over our joy. Learning to resist temptation means learning also to interpret our own bad behavior by learning to identify our controlling desires, our controlling narratives about life. That's the sin beneath the sin, and that's, that's where we have to work. It's at that second, deeper level that James is talking about. In my Saturday morning example, the problem was not, first of all, that I got angry or irritated. I could just say, well, stop that. Don't let that happen again. But I haven't really dealt with what's underneath that. I haven't dealt with the controlling narrative that led me to get angry. I hadn't dealt with the fact that my comfort, my leisure, my timeline was a non-negotiable that everyone else had to serve. If I only say I must stop getting angry, I'm misunderstanding the nature of sin, and I'm misunderstanding what James is talking about here. Instead, we look deeper that our anger is often an expression of I must have this or else, and we have to identify what this is. What is that thing that has your heart, that has your desire so much that is leading you to make decisions and live in such a way that you don't want to live, making decisions that you don't want to make, having habits that you would rather not have? Resist temptation Not because if you don't, that God will get you, but if you don't, you'll end up on the rocks, consumed, shackled, controlled, destroyed, dead. You see, if if the problem is breaking the rules, then our solution will be like Ulysses. Do you remember in the Odyssey? He straps himself to the ship mast so that he doesn't give in to the siren singing. He wants to hear them, but he doesn't want to go all the way there. He doesn't want to be controlled, and so he controls his behavior. He straps himself to the mask. But if we see temptation and sin rightly, our solution shouldn't be that of Ulysses, but that of Orpheus, who sailed with Jason and the Argonauts. What did he do? He didn't strap himself to the mask. When the siren call was heard, he took out his lyre and played an even more beautiful song. He played even more beautiful music, drowning out the deceptive beauty of the siren song. You see the difference? One is controlling behavior. One is learning to put their desires on something that's more compelling and more fulfilling. We can only unseat fully a destructive affection by a greater affection. We can only unseat a a destructive joy by finding a greater joy, something that's more compelling, more lasting, more fulfilling, more final. You can only unseat a love by a greater love. And I don't mean to discourage you here by saying you need to love Jesus more, and then you would love these other things less, because that's really the problem, isn't it? That's the real challenge, and so we can't make the challenge and the problem itself the solution. What I think ultimately needs to happen is that we see that the cure for our misplaced loves is not just simply growing the intensity of our love, but allowing that love to be grown by the object. In other words, it's not, the key is not the intensity of our love, but it's the worth of the object. It's the worth of Jesus. I desire to know and experience 
God. I desire what he has. I desire peace. I desire rest. I desire unwavering love. That's what I'm looking for in all of these other misplaced loves. And ultimately, they lead us, leave us unfulfilled. When I sin, I'm looking for these things that I long to find in God. I'm looking for these things in temporal objects. Robert Ferrer Capon uh, was an Episcopal, Episcopal priest, and he says, the reason for not going out and sinning all you like is the same as the reason for not going out and putting your nose in a slicing machine. It's dumb, stupid, and no fun. Some individual sins may have pleasure still attached to them because of the residual goodness of the realities that they are abusing. Adultery can be pleasant. Tying one on can be amusing. But betrayal, jealousy, a love grown grown cold, and the gray dawn of the morning after are nobody's idea of a good time. Not only does God say, resist temptation and turn to me, he says these other things are false enticements. They never live up to their allure. They sound beautiful, they look beautiful, but you end up on the rocks. But what he says, and this is the motivation, and we'll close with this, that he says that he is the father of heavenly lights, that every good, every truly good, really good thing comes from him. And how do we know that? Because he says that he does not withhold his only son from us, that he longs for our ultimate fulfillment and joy so much that he sends his own son to guarantee it and to give it to us. That's how much he wants us to be ultimately fulfilled. If you cannot trust him in that, then it's going to be hard to fight temptation. It's going to be hard to resist if we can't believe that he is so good, that he is so trustworthy, that he gives his only son for us to lead us away from the disappointment of our lesser loves and to the true light and to true happiness. Let's pray to that end now. Dear Father, I pray that you would begin to take hold of each of us and us as a church and that you would begin to replace those false loves, even those things that are good that we pursue, that we wouldn't pursue them with wild abandon, that we wouldn't pursue them to our own detriment, that we wouldn't make them non-negotiables. I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the discernment to understand the difference between experiencing your goodness and experiencing the goodness of creation and relishing in it without being owned by it and driven by the seeking of it. Lord God, I pray that ultimately we would see Jesus, that we would see him as the ultimate good, as the ultimate fulfiller, as the one who came and lived for us and died for us and resurrected and was resurrected for us. And Lord, let us more and more let that object rest in the middle of who we are. Let that object of our desire begin to displace all of our other petty little ones. Lord, we pray that you would do that as we confess our faith, that you would do that as we come to the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.